Thanks, John. Thanks, you guys. And uh, good evening, everyone. Glad that we can be together tonight. Thanks for, thanks for making it out here to Mount Hermon. My name is Richard Dahlstrom, and I'll just tell you a little bit about me and about where we're heading this weekend before I pray and uh, we begin. You can know me a little bit by the numbers 4321. I have four hobbies, skiing, hiking, riding, photography. I have three children. Uh, my oldest daughter has two children of her own, so I'm a granddad as well. She lives right near me in Seattle, Washington uh, with her husband. My son lives in the mountains east of Seattle. He owns a bakery and a restaurant. Uh, my daughter, my youngest daughter, also she lives in Seattle and she owns a bakery. So our kids are into food for reasons that are beyond me because we I was a pastor, like broke. We never ate out. Uh, I have two jobs. i Predominantly, I'm senior pastor of Bethany Community Church, a church of six locations in Seattle, Washington, and I also teach uh, with Torchbearers Missionary Fellowship, a coalition of 27 Bible schools uh, around the world. In fact, the picture that you're looking at is from uh, a time of my teaching in Austria a couple of summers ago with a group of uh, young college students as they went rock climbing, and I was, I was their, privileged to be their Bible teacher for the week. 432, and then I have one wife. Only one wife. And I'm happy to say to you, we just celebrated our 40th wedding anniversary, like uh, literally a month ago. In fact, it was a month ago this weekend, so that's awesome. Mount Hermon is very close to my heart. When Dave called, he actually left a message with my assistant, and my assistant, McKinsey, then uh, in my weekly meeting with me, she said, oh, uh... I didn't want to call this guy back yet, but I know the answer will be no, because you're already booked up for this coming summer, but uh, this guy called from a place called Mount Hermon, and I said, oh no, I'm not booked up. If it's Mount Hermon, I want to be there, and the reason is this place is uh, foundational to my spiritual journey and my, and my life. Uh, when I finish here tonight, in fact, I will walk... 200 yards down here, just down toward the creek, to my grandmother's house. My grandma was the cook here from 1962 to about 1974, 1975. Uh, I was adopted. Uh, uh, I was born in 1956. That tells you how old I am. I was adopted in 57. And then uh, in, uh, my grandmother moved here in, I think, 60, and then started working here in 61 or 62. But I have a... I have a letter in, in this special box at Home of Memories, a letter when my uh, dad, my adopted dad, tells his mom, who's my grandmother who cooked here, he says, um, uh, hey, uh, we'd like to bring little Richard, that was what I was called, little Richard, we'd like to bring little Richard to Mount Hermon. And then, and then I have the letter, my grandmother's response. She said, she said, not only do I want you to bring, but I want you to come every summer. So starting in 1962, apparently, I started coming here every, every summer. Uh, and I, would, I, I grew up uh, in my grandma's house just 200 yards from here. Uh, longer story than right now, but came up here one night to just buy a snack and instead uh, heard the speaker speaking who had a British accent and because he had a British accent, and because I'm from Fresno, nobody has a British accent in Fresno. So I, uh, 
I stopped in and listened, and then I, and then I liked it so much I bought his book, and he was with this group of Bible schools with whom I'm now affiliated, and the reason I'm affiliated is because I bought this book here uh, when I was actually 12 years old in 1958. So this place is like, I, I can't get enough of being here, and I'm just honored to uh, play a small part in the work that Mount Hermon is doing, such a great work of proclaiming Christ. So that's a little bit of my story, and I'm just really honored indeed to be here. And, this, and the theme, I want to tell you where we're heading this, this week in the Gospel of John, we're heading, to, we're going to look at this theme, elemental. And let me just explain what I mean by that. All of you know this phrase. You are what, let's say it together, you are what you, you are what you eat, right? And so all of you are a little larger now because you had that meal, and then you're going to go have some more afterwards, we're going to be a little bit larger still, but uh, everything that we consume actually becomes a part of us and ultimately determines a little bit anyway of who we are, even on a physical level. I've, I've just learned this in this last year because... Um, when I went to the doctor, my blood pressure was creeping up a little bit. I run and, and, and I try to take care of myself, but I also eat a lot of bacon and drink a lot of coffee. So there's things that aren't so good probably. And so my, my doctor, who's a naturopath, he, he said, look, you don't need this, this, this. And by the way, this isn't doctor's advice. This is just my story. So I'll just tell you that. But this is what he says to me. He says, uh, Richard, I want you to drink a cup of beet juice every morning and every evening. I was like, what are you talking about, beet juice? He says, yeah, beet juice. So I've been doing that now for six months, and my blood pressure's back down to normal completely just by drinking beet juice. I don't know what's in it. I don't know what the secret sauce is, but whatever, it works. And here's the point. What you consume changes who you are. What you consume changes who you are. And... Second premise that'll take us down the road here in the Gospel of John is this. Uh, you need to be changed. Being changed is a good thing. Listen to this. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him Christ, who knew no sin, made him to become sin for us so that we might, what? Does anyone know? So that, listen, not so that we might get our ticket stamped and go to heaven. In other words, you're not here tonight because you are positionally righteous. God looks at you and all he sees is the goodness of Jesus. And so now you're fully accepted and now you know that when you die, you go to heaven. All good, all true, but not the main point. Second Corinthians 5.21 says it this way. He, God, made him Christ who knew no sin, made him to become sin on our behalf in order that we might become, and that word become is a transformative word, that I might become here in this life, right now, nothing less than the righteousness of God, so that I'm called every day to be moving from glory to glory to glory, looking more and more and more like Jesus, from lust to purity, from greed to generosity, from cynicism to hope, from complacency to engagement, from, from shading the truth to honesty, from covetousness to contentment. I'm just called to be on this constant journey of transformation so that nothing less than the life of the risen Jesus can find expression through me. And then if that's a goal, and that's a good goal, by the way, because that's the life for which I'm created. If that's my goal, then the question on the table this evening is, okay, great. If I'm, if I'm to be more like Christ, how do I do that? 
And that takes us to the Gospel of John, and it actually takes us to the next slide, because this is kind of where we're going here. So we're looking this week at four elements. Jesus taught through experiences, and these are the four things that we're going to look at. We're going to look at the element of wine, because the story that we see this evening in John chapter 2 speaks of our capacity to bless. God made us to be blessings to others, and yet we're incapable of doing that apart from the empowering work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we look at wine tonight. Tomorrow morning we look at bread, because Jesus is intending to be our fundamental primary source of satisfaction so that we say and mean it, if I have a relationship with Jesus, I have enough. That'll free me from a lot of stuff and free me to live into my calling. So that bread thing is tomorrow morning. Tomorrow night, remember what Jesus said? I'm the vine, you are the branch. Abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. We look at, we look at the vine. And then uh, Sunday morning, before you go home, I want to remind you of the fish and the fire. And this is the story, actually, of uh, Peter having denied Christ, decides he's going to go back and live in his old ways. And then uh, God invites Peter back into God's story through Jesus and through a, like a great fishing story, right? And it's a very important story for us because I know that all of us are going to go back with great intentions, and yet I know that we're all human as well, and we'll have one of those .50 days or whatever you just said, and we're going to be bummed, and then, you know, what do we do with that? So uh, tonight, I want to look at the wine piece of this. So we go to the next slide. Uh, this, is going to, this is kind of where we're going this evening, right? So, so uh, we're in the Gospel of John, and John uses a very specific word for miracle in his letter. There's six different words for miracles uh, in, in the Greek language, and the word that John uses is a sign. In other words, these miracles, every miracle in the Gospel of John is intended to teach us something about the character of Christ, right? So when Jesus, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and then he says, oh, by the way, I'm the bread of life. Jesus heals a man born blind, and he says, oh, by the way, I'm the light of the world. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and he says what? I am the resurrection and the life. In John 15, Jesus will later say, I'm the vine, you're the branches. But this miracle as well points to Christ as the source of our capacity to be people of blessing. So we come to know Christ's character and our calling by kind of lingering over these sign miracles so that we can become not people who are more religious and, and you know, working hard to please God, but rather people who are, who are in a very kind of relaxed way in tune with the Spirit of God, confident that God is transforming us. Confident that because we're feasting on Christ, consuming the right stuff, Christ is changing us. And if I could leave you with one thing this weekend, it would be that. Not that every problem is solved, not that every disease is healed, not that every question is answered, but if you could just leave here with a confidence that if I feast on Christ, just like drinking beet juice, the magic happens, right? Like if I just feast on Christ, I can know I'm being transformed. Then you're gonna go out and be people of blessing wherever you go. So we wanna get there. And we're going to start tonight by looking at the wine, and this wine thing shows up this evening in what I call a four-act play, right, this story. And so we want to begin here with this wine thing by understanding the problem, and the problem in the story, many of you know the story, some may not, but if you know the story, the problem is there's no wine at the, at the wedding, right? So I'm going to read. On the third day, I'm in John chapter 2 in your Bibles, on the third day there's a wedding in Cain of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. 
And then the wine ran out, and the mother of Jesus said to Jesus, Jesus, they have no wine. Now, it's an interesting story, but it's way more interesting if you understand the cultural significance of the wine here. So we're going to look at this for just a minute. Um, uh, this wedding ceremony is very different than anything most of us have experienced. We, I, I do weddings uh, as, a, as a pastor, and what I'm discovering as the years go on, it, it seems like many weddings are getting shorter. I don't know if that's a general thing or just in my world, but the bride and the groom, they want to do the thing and then have a piece of cake and then leave, right? Uh, and so weddings like go from, like over in Europe, there are these all-day things. And then back in the day, I, I remember some six-hour, eight-hour things, short, 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 and they just get shorter and shorter. Well, these weddings, this was a thing, right? So this is what, I, this is what you need to understand. Imagine, there's a ceremony, and then when the ceremony ends, there's actually a parade back to the house that this new couple is going to live in. And then there's a long party. And listen, by a long party, what do I mean? I mean a week. There's a week-long party. In other words, an open house. The, the new couple is hosting a drop-in open house for a week. And anyone can come in, and you feed them. And not only do you feed them, but you offer them, you offer them food and you offer them drink. And here's the thing, uh, when you offer them drink, you offer them wine, and when you offer them wine, the, this is very important, the wine is a sign that you're blessed and able to bless others. So the wine is a sign. Now, I, don't, I was trying to think, what do we have that's the cultural equivalent of a sign that you're doing okay? And the only, I, I mean, you would think of some things, but the thing that I think of most recently is a, a car. Our cars seem like signs. Who has a Yaris in here? Does anyone have a Yaris? You know what a Yaris is? <laughs> Yaris is like a tiny little Toyota. I don't, there aren't many of them around, right? I had a Yaris for the past 10 years. It's 40 miles a gallon. It's tiny. It's a two-door. It's beat up. It's been hit by, you know, skis and rocks. When I went rock climbing, once a rock fell and hit it. It's, it's a mess, man. But I'm like this. Who cares? It's a car. It gets me from here to there. That's all I need a car to be. And then, just this fall, I upgraded. I was out running around Green Lake, and I saw a car, a car for sale, a Toyota RAV4, right? And I'm so kind of not into it. That I just looked, I go, oh, it's got 49,000 miles. How much are you asking? I went and I looked up. I go, man, he's asking less than it's worth. And I, I looked around. I drove it once. I was like this, I'll take it. I didn't even know when I took it. I called my wife. I said, I just bought this car. She said, uh, how many doors? Does I go, gosh, I don't even know. I don't even know. <laughs> I, and I go out. I go, wow, it has four doors. Instead of two. And then I call her back. I go, hey, you're gonna believe this. It has a sunroof too. And she's like, you bought it and you didn't even know that it had a sunroof. I didn't know anything. I just bought it. And now, because people know me, like when I show up somewhere, they go, whoa, what, man, you're okay. 
Like, subtext, you were a loser until now, right? <laughs> but now you, got the, now you got a car that works, man. We're, you're, oh, woo, you're awesome. Well, listen, this couple have a Yaris. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, like when they're out of wine, they're, what they're saying, and they're not saying it uh, verbally, but what they're saying is, we're on the bottom rung here, and we don't have the capacity to bless. And by the way, if you're Jewish, that's a big problem. Because if you go back to Genesis 12, what was Abraham's fundamental charge as the father of the nation of Israel? God says, I will bless you so that you will what? Be a blessing to others. And the, and the way that that blessing played out in Judaic culture was through hospitality and, and, and through you know, awesome food and good wine. And so here's a couple, brand newly married, and they're out of wine. It's an omen. In fact, so much so that one rabbi said it this way, where there is no wine, there is no joy. Where there is no joy, there is no capacity to be a blessing. Now, hear me. So far, it's just fun social uh, uh, kind of uh, esoteric knowledge about Judaic culture, but it's more than that. There's symbolism in the wine. So why, this is really, really important. When you go back to Numbers 12 and 13, and you see Israel go into the land, do you remember that? The spies go into the land, this land that God is going to give, the promised land. They go in. When they come back, they say, man, this, is the, this land is awesome. Oh, yeah? How do you know it's awesome? Well, here's how. Look at these grapes. And they've got grapes on a, on a pole, one cluster of grapes, gigantic grapes. The grapes were a sign of blessing. This is a land flowing with milk and honey. This is a land of what? Fine wine, Numbers chapter 12, Numbers chapter 13. And that was intended by God to be a picture of Israel's calling. Israel is called to be this light shining to all the other nations. Israel is saying, in a world of idolatry, you will teach all the other nations about justice and, 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 and freedom and blessing and beauty and peace and generosity and hospitality. How? Because... You know, I'm going to so pour blessings on you that you will overflow blessings to others. You will bless the world. That was God's, that's God's intent, right? For Israel as a nation, so that when you get to Isaiah chapter 5, and Israel is in the kind of the latter days, just before her total destruction about 100 years later, in Isaiah 5, Isaiah is poetically portraying the problem. Oh, you want to know why God is judging you? Here, I'll tell you why God is judging you. Because God said Israel is like a vineyard. And look, I tilled the soil and I planted the vine and I watered and I cared and I pruned and I trimmed and I waited and there were no good grapes. And so I trimmed some more and I waited some more. No good grapes. And if I wait a season, two, five, and there are no grapes, Isaiah asked the question, chapter 5, what would any rational farmer do? Cut his losses and start over. You want to know, Israel, why judgment's coming? That's why. Because <laughs> I, I made you to be a blessing, but by virtue of your idolatry, your idolatry led you to make incredibly stupid decisions, and you became a land characterized by arrogance, slavery, violence, Greed, pride, and injustice. Far from blessing anyone, you're completely misrepresenting God's character. So, do you, like, 
Do you claim Jehovah? Yeah. Do you have a temple? Yeah. Do you have worship services? Yeah. Do you sing? Yeah. Go to Bible study? Totally. Look, we're do- here's the thing. We're doing all the right stuff, and yet in spite of the fact that we're doing all the right stuff, no blessing. That's the problem. And by the way, it's not just this couple's problem and not just Israel's problem. It's our problem. Uh, atheism is growing faster in Christian North America than anywhere in the world right now. We're producing more atheists. For all of our seminaries and Christian radio and podcasts and conference centers and churches, all the stuff we do, atheism is like nuns are the fastest growing category uh, in in religious uh, and spiritual inquiry census stuff. And when you ask, when I ask some of my friends who are pagan why they're pagan, here's what they say. I don't want anything to do with Jesus. And I go, well, why is that? Well, because, just look at the church. And the church has unwittingly been, been yoked with racism, violence, upward mobility, disregard for the poor, arrogance. This is not who we are. But it's who we look like. And so, so we've kind of collectively lost our capacity to bless because we're not representing the heart of Christ accurately. And then, and then on top of that kind of collective problem, I mean, the reality is that all of, there's all of us in the room go through seasons when though we know Christ, though to use the metaphor of the, of the couple, though we're married to Christ and know Christ and, and worship and serve in churches and sing, and give, and maybe go on mission trips. But somehow the joy has dried up. The sense of meaning has dried up. The sense of calling has dried up. And it could be chronic or it could be acute, but it happens to us. We, there, there are moments when we are running on empty. That's this couple. My wife and I ran a, a tiny retreat center for many years in the Cascade Mountains of Washington, Washington State, right up at the Canadian border. And uh, uh, groups would come in, and we would host them. It was a bit like uh, 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 Labrie, if any of you know, a ministry in Switzerland decades ago where people would just drop in. And so we ran this thing, and I'd be, you know, I'd go out and speak, and then I'd make friends with people, and I'd say, hey, come, come, you know. And then people would start coming, but then I'd go out and speak again, right? And so my poor wife is... um, uh, caring for these cabins and cleaning the cabins and cooking an evening meal every, every night for whoever happens to be there. And at one point, there were about 30 people there, and we have three kids at the time whose ages were seven, six, and two. That's young, by the way, for moms. They understand that. You may not, but they do, right? <laughs> so, so seven, six, and two, and, and, uh, and, and uh, I'm off in Europe uh, teaching. And so we had a house church as well, and it's a particular Sunday, and my wife has had it up to here. Like, she's just fed up with all, she's just exhausted. She's exhausted. And uh, so whoever was speaking that week, somebody sits down at the piano, and they say, hey, Donna, come play guitar. And she says, I'm not really in the mood. I'm not really in the mood to play guitar. No, 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 come on. Uh, We need you. You know, you're good. And so... (laughs) She being the kind of people-pleasing person she is, she walks up on stage and she starts 
playing, you know, and there's, here's this song. This song, this is old, old school stuff. It's in the 90s, right? I will, do you know this one? I will enter his gates with thanksgiving in my heart. I will enter. And then it, here's the thing at the end, the chorus or whatever it is, he has made me glad. He has made me. So she's like running on empty. And now everybody's, there's like 50 people in our living room singing, he has made me glad. She has tears streaming down her face. It's comical in retrospect, but it wasn't so funny at the time. Like she's crying and she's singing, he has made me glad. You know, and then she just heaving sobs. And, and, and then finally, like people just stopped, slowly stopped singing. And they were like, are you okay? And here's Donna. I am not glad. That's what she said. <laughs> I, am, I am not glad. Oh, really? Oh, I mean, I mean, you know, we have these guests here, you know. I'm not glad. Why are you not glad? Why are you not glad? Well, because Richard gets all of you here, and then he leaves. He's in Europe somewhere. I don't even know where. He's off speaking, being glad. I'm here with septic tanks, and he's, he's talking about C.S. Lewis, and I'm changing diapers, and he's talking theology, and I'm cutting wood, and he's, you know, I am not glad. Bam. I mean, what am I saying? This is what I'm saying. You ever been running on empty? Yeah, we all have. Uh, it happens. Happened to this couple. And what we'll see here in a minute is the fact that it happened to the couple is actually a good thing. It's actually a good thing. You don't, have to, you don't have to try and run on empty. Don't worry about it. You will. <laughs> you don't have to try and fail. Don't worry. You will. But what I want to show you this evening is how God can use this stuff, right? So that's the symbolism of the why. You are made. You are made to be a blessing to the world. You are. You're made to bless your spouse, your kids, your neighbors, like, so that light would pour through you. That's your calling. You're made for that. And if you're, if you're not killing it tonight, it's Okay. Like, if you're running empty, it's okay. But understand, you're made for that. And you will never find satisfaction until you start moving in that direction. You're made to be this, this container pouring out the very best wine. That's your calling. So that's the first thing. And then here we are, we're empty. Still have the rituals, but we're empty. So then, act two, there's two perspectives on this. And here's Mary. She says, uh, Jesus, they have no wine. In other words, here's all she wants to do is what? Fix it. I just want to fix it. I, I want to spare this couple any embarrassment. From the perspective of Mary, the goal is simply to avoid uh, like any humiliation here for this couple. She's compassionate. She understands that they're running on empty. Yeah, 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 yeah. So let's just fix it. But then J Jesus' response, he says... Um, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour is not yet come. This is very interesting here. The, the, when he says the phrase woman, he's not, it's not derogatory, but here, this is what he's saying. He's saying, listen, you want me to fix it, and he will fix it, right? We know that. But here, this is what he's saying. This is very important. He says, look, I didn't come to just fix things. Are you with me? In other words, this is what he says. My hour you want to fix this? Oh, no, no. Listen, my hour has not yet come. This is very important. Why? It means that Jesus is simply not interested in ever whitewashing over our problems. So don't ever reduce Jesus to just your fix-it man. Does that make sense? You, you want him to fix your marriage, but you're called to more than a good marriage. 
You want him to fix your loneliness, but you're called to more than just overcoming loneliness. You want him to end human trafficking, or uh, you want to overcome your addiction, or you want to find a new job, and you think, if I could just do that, that's it. And Jesus is saying, listen, those are downstream problems, but I have an upstream solution. In other words, look, can I fix your problem? Yes, I can fix your problem. But I, I didn't come just to fix your problem. I came to transform you, right? So... Quit wishing that it could just be yesterday and your wife didn't discover your browser, if I can be that blunt. Just quit wishing. Oh, if I could just turn back the clock, then I wouldn't have done it. Oh, really? Then what would you be? The same as you are. No, no. Listen, God didn't come to turn back the clock. God came for transformation. There's this uh, guy that I knew who... His wife literally did discover his browser. And um, then she she was angry and hurt, and she came to me and talked to me about his pornography stuff. And I said to her, "Um, I think that you should draw a line in the sand and say to him, I want you to move out, and we're going to get counseling, And then once we've gotten counseling, we're going to date some more. And then once we date, I'm going to invite you to move home. I'm not going to divorce you. I'm committed to marriage. But I'm committed to real love. And because I love you, I don't want to let you. This is not going to stay this way. Because Because I love you, it's not going to stay this way. So I told her that's what I would do if I were in her shoes, right? She went home and did that. And then he, this guy calls me on the phone. And he's like, did you tell her to do that stuff? I go, yeah. He goes, if she makes me leave, then I'm going to file for divorce. He was so mad. I go, hey, listen. No, no, you're not. I know you. You're not going to file for divorce. You love her. And this is, this is what he does. Yeah, you're right. I do. I love her. <laughs> I, I'm not, I'm not going to file for divorce. I go, yeah, I'm not going to go to counseling. I go, oh, no, you're going to go to counseling. You need counseling, man. You're desperately, you're, you know, you're messed up. Yeah, you're right. I am. I got to go to counseling. So I'm going to go to counseling, you know. And then, I, oh, this dating sounds dumb. No, you're going to, yeah, yeah, I am going to date her. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, it was, a, it was an 18-month process, right? At the, at the end of 18 months, uh, they, they come together into my office. They're like, hey, we want to do a new ceremony because we're starting anew and we're building this time on the foundation of Jesus. And then they have a ministry helping other couples uh, where a spouse is caught in porn. Look, God fixed it, but he, did, he didn't just turn back the clock. Do you understand? Man, Jeremiah's complaint with, regarding false prophets in the Old Testament was this. Why are the false prophets healing wounds superficially? Don't do that. God doesn't want a superficial healing for you. God wants a transformation. He came to make you a brand new creation, moving from lust to love, moving from greed to generosity. And if you're not willing to move, if you're not willing to do the work, the transformation is superficial. What does superficial transformation look like? Let's just sing louder. Let's just pray more. Let's just study harder. Let's just use more God words. That'll fix it. No, it won't. It won't fix it. And and churches are filled with men who are not yet functioning in the abundant life for which they're created because we're trained to put on a superficially healed veil called Christianity 
as a substitute for profound life-altering transformation. This is what God wants from us, though, is this incredible journey of transformation. So God always has something better in mind. That's the thing. But our instinct, everything in us, like we just wanted to be September 10th again, not instead of, instead of 9-11. Can we just go back a day, and then we'd know, we'd, then we'd fix it. We just, we, 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 24 hours early. We just want the cancer to go away. We just want the problem to leave. No. That's not how God works. When I was um, 17 years old, my dad died. I was a senior in high, high school, McLean High School, right, right by where John, our worship guy, lives. Come over a football game, and my mom says, Dad's not going to make it through the night. I go spend the night with him. He's gone by the morning. He died at the age of 53. And his death plunged me into pretty profound uh, depression, actually. And then his mom, who worked here, died short, right after that. And these were my two saints. These were my saints. And uh, I kind of took a vacation from God. I'll say it that way. And I decided, um, you know, life is short. Who knows how long you live? Dad died really suddenly. I know what will give my life meaning. I'm going to make stuff that will be around when I'm gone. So I decided, right after my dad died, I want to be an architect. And I, um, and I applied to Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo, and Went down there and started studying at Cal Poly, studying architecture. And so here I am. I'm at Cal Poly. I'm going to church. I'm singing the songs. I know the language. Outwardly, no one knows what's going on inside my heart. But inside my heart, do you know what? I'm running on empty with a capital E. I'm depressed. I'm mad at God. I have questions that no one seems to be willing to answer. And maybe the reason no one's answering them is because I don't have the guts to ask them. But I'm living in this kind of lonely, anxious, depressed spiritual soup with no capacity of blessing to anyone. And this is part of my story. No wine. Yeah. Are you out of wine tonight? It's okay. It's okay. Because here's where it goes. Jesus wants to fix the situation. Here's how. Don't you love this? So Jesus says to um, the servants, uh, fill the water pots with water. And the reason that Jesus speaks to the servants is because the mother says to the servants, whatever Jesus says, do it. So there's six stone water pots set at the front door for the custom of Jewish purification. Now watch this. When you come to the party... There's a, there's a water pot, and I won't do this now, but like this big water pot, 30 gallons in the pot. So we're all coming to this newlywed couple's house, and there's these water pots here. And so what, what's the point of the water pot? Well, you know, we've been walking on the road. We've been shaking hands with people. We've been eating stuff. We maybe went to the bathroom, whatever it is. But when we, when we come into the house, what do we do? What do we do in this water pot? What do we do? We put our, hand, our filthy hands in this lukewarm water, and we ceremonially clean our hands. Now, our, I know one thing. My hands are not perfectly clean. I know another thing. The water is now disgusting, right? Like it's becoming this, uh, this pool of bacteria, really. That's what it is. So here, now, Jesus says, uh, fill the water pots with water. So they do. 
And he says, uh, now draw some of that water out. Now, this is new water. So they've emptied the water, put new water in. Draw some water out and take the head waiter. So they take this water out of this container that was filled with dirty water. They, they, take, they take the water out and they, they take it to the head waiter. Now, I'm just going to make a couple observations right here. First observation is this. When I'm out of wine, what I need is obedience, Right? Like, I am restored by taking a next step. I have to take a next step. In Romans 1 and 16, there's 16 chapters in Romans. So the book of Romans is chaptered by this phrase, the obedience of faith. Faith requires action. Does this make sense? In other words, when I'm running on empty, if I draw near to God, there will always be a step to take of some sort. Always some kind of a step. And again, I'll just use my beet juice illustration, as silly as it is. This guy says to me, my doctor says to me, drink beet juice. I can, uh, what can I do? I can either drink it or what? Not drink it. I can, uh, the choice is pretty simple. If I drink it, I may, have, I may not have a ton of faith in this doctor, but I have enough faith to what? Try what he said. I'm just going to try I'm just going to try it. Oh, you said to drink it? I'm going to drink it. I'll, I'll give it a month. And then, no matter what I think of the beet juice, no matter what I think of my faith in the beet juice, if I drink it, the beet juice works its magic. And if I don't, it doesn't. So I can say I'm a fan of beet juice, but if I never drink beet juice... I'm not a fan. Does that make sense? Okay, let's just apply this to this particular situation, right? Hey, fill the stone water pots with water. And here's the deal. You either will or you won't. But if you, if you don't, then don't say to Jesus what an awesome guy he is because the only way that your belief in his awesomeness is made real is to your what? Obedience. That's it. So um, there's going to be a step to take for all of us. And, and, and we either take the step or we don't. When I was running on empty, I'm attending Cal Poly, and I, I uh, am invited by a, a cute girl to a ski retreat in the Sierra Nevada mountains east of Fresno. And so I go. It's a Christian thing. But that's not why I went. I went for two reasons, skiing and this blonde, in that order specifically, right? And so I went to this thing, and the, and the guy speaking spoke on Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 to 27, all weekend, one little thing. This, and this is Jeremiah 9. Don't let the rich man boast of his riches. Don't let the mighty man boast of his strength. Don't let the, the, the wise man boast of his wisdom. If anyone would ever boast, let him boast of this, that he understands and knows me, the Lord. And then the guy, the speaker, literally points at me. And he says, there's some of you in the room who are outwardly successful and outwardly religious, but you don't know God at all. And you don't have a clue what to do with your life. And you're anxious and you're depressed and you're afraid and you need to get down on your knees and you need to say, God, I want to make knowing you the number one goal of my life. And he's pointing at me the whole time. I was like, I wonder who he's talking to right now. Who could this be? 
right? And it was totally me, and I, got, and I went out, and I got down on my knees, and I prayed, and I said, God, I don't know what it means, but I want to know you. I want to know you. And I will just say to you, that, that prayer changed the entire trajectory of my life. Because I prayed that prayer, uh, uh, within nine months, I changed majors from architecture to music and changed schools from Cal Poly to Seattle Pacific University and changed states from California to, to, to Washington. Everything changed because God spoke and I did one thing, one thing. And I, I wasn't sure I wanted to. I was doing well in what I was doing, but it was very clear to me that this was a step that I needed to take. And so I, I just say with all that is within me this evening, look, I may have a giant problem over here. I don't know what it is. Is it depression? Is it the fact that I'm self-medicating with a little bit too much alcohol? Or I'm self-medicating with porn? Is it, is it that I'm involved in an unhealthy relationship? It's that, is it that my faith is perfunctory, but there's no life behind it? I'm going to say to you, don't worry about fixing that. Just take the next step. Whatever is the single next step, because transformation is a journey, and it will only begin when you take the next step that God wants you to take. And then the, the other thing to, to note here in this little uh, story is that this obedience always begins with what's there. I mean, what's in the room? A couple of water pots? Okay, fine, we'll use those. Oh, Richard, uh, uh, you know, this uh, fellow architecture student says to me at Cal Poly, oh, you play piano? Oh, you play piano? Great. You're going to play piano in the Dorn Bible study. And he didn't even ask. Like, he just shook me and said, you're going to do this. And, and that became the impetus to change majors and, and change schools. And then God tricked me and became a pastor. That's another story for a different day. But the point here would be, you take a step and God honors it. And the step is like, what's right here in front of you? Oh, you play piano? Well, I'm going to use that. Oh, there's a water pot? Great. We'll make wine out of that. My friend Linda um, works at Amazon, downtown Seattle. We have, you know, a couple hundred people moving into the city every week. And so she uh, comes to me and says, hey, we got to start a thing down at Amazon. So that's her thing. She, like, she, she works down there. She knows people down there. And so last Monday night, we started an outreach at Amazon. And, and we did a little, you know, Bible study down there because Linda took a step. There's always a step if you just listen. And a step leads to transformation. And the last thing to note here about these steps is this obedience entails risk, doesn't it? Because he says, take it to the head waiter, uh, who's basically, in our language today, the wedding coordinator. So these servants actually put their own employment at risk by taking this to the head guy and saying, hey, why don't you serve this to the guests? Like, insane, right? So, so um, what we do know about these servants is that they, they did it. We don't know what they knew about Christ, but they know, we know that they did it. And that obedience is the basis of transformation. Do you see? So they took the step, and that led ultimately to the transformation. What's the transformation? Don't you love this? Watch this. Head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, didn't know where it'd come from. And the head waiter calls the bridegroom. And, the, and he says to the bridegroom, hey, everybody serves the good wine first, 
And then when people have drunk freely, we all understand what that means. They, then they bring out the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until the end. You get it? Who does this? No one does this. I mean, I don't know who serves wine in here, but people who serve wine, that you can get that stuff at Trader Joe's, two-buck chuck, right? Like, serve that during the first three quarters of the game, and then bring out the good wine at the end. Never. Never. No, no. It's always the other way, except in God's economy. In God's economy, always this, the best is at the end. And when you go through the Bible, you see it over and over again. It's the way the gospel works. What was, it in, what was the situation in the garden prepositionally? It was what? God with us. Now, after the cross, it's what? Christ in us. This is the way your life works. Then it was a nation displaying the character of God. Now it's all nations. Then... Uh, we were the friend of God, now we're the bride of Christ. The, like, the best is last. But what has, to what has to happen, what has to happen is we have to show up and take the next step. I'll just close by sharing a story with you from exactly this text. I think it was 15 years ago that I was uh, heading to Montreal, Canada, to speak at a men's retreat. And the, my, the first night, I was going to speak on this passage right here in John 2. And it was a men's retreat, but the, and the theme was going to be, over the course of the week, it was going to be marriage, actually. And my wife is driving me to the airport. And have any of you ever had this happen, where as you're on the way to the airport, you get a little spat with your spouse? Has this happened to anyone in the room? <clears throat> Ever happened? Th that didn't happen because this was not a little spat. This was horrific. This was like in 40 years of marriage, this was epic, like one of the big five fights that we had. Like this is one where we remember the hurtful words that were said because uh, we don't remember what we were arguing about, but we remember the hurtful words. That's its own thing. But it was like this. We, Donna, my wife, she's driving, she pulls up, I with the door, and she goes, hey, don't even bother coming home. Those are harsh words, man. Like, she didn't mean it. She was functioning out of pain. And I knew that at a level, but I was in pain. And so I said, well, maybe I won't. <laughs> Shut the door. Walk into the airport. This is like pre-cell phone days too, right? So there's no like, I'm sorry. That was the stupidest thing I ever did. Will you forgive me? That's off the table. Like I'm, I'm now on the plane, five hours of Montreal. And the whole time, here's Satan, like right here on my shoulder. Like, you're going to go speak about marriage? Ha! What a laugh. You're the biggest loser with the worst marriage on the planet Earth. I, like, I think you should just stay on the plane and just turn around and come home and tell the, the, the camp director that you died or something like that. <laughs> and just find a way to bow out because you don't have what it takes, right? I mean, it was just this chat, this con five hours of condemnation. 
And I get there, you know, the guy picks me up and he's super excited about the men's retreat, you know, and I'm in this dark hole. And, and uh, we go to the camp I, and I skip dinner. I go to my room. He goes, hey, and he comes, he's a super friendly guy. Hey, don't you want to mingle? And I was like this, no. I'm praying, which is a total lie. I'm praying. I'm not praying. I'm hating myself is what I'm doing. And then, you know, the meal ends, and then everybody's kind of moving into the thing, into the room like this, and there's music playing. He comes and knocks again. Hey, you know, we're starting in 10 minutes, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, oh, I'll be there, I'll be there. And finally, he opens the door. He says, hey, you can hear him. They're singing. Richard, come on, let's go, right? So I go. Do I want to go? No. Now, hear this, because I think some of you can identify. Do I know God? Yeah. Do I love God? Yeah. Do I want to serve God? Absolutely. Am I in God's will right now? Not at all. Like, like I am walking a cloud of shame and condemnation from, from bad things that I said and a cloud of hurt from bad things that my wife said to me and a, and a cloud of anger from things I said back to her and then regret over those things and all that stuff is jumbled up and I still, do I love God? Absolutely. And I'm human. So sue me. <laughs> like, so I show up. I go out there and speak on this thing, turning water into wine. And then at the end, I do this prayer thing. And so everybody's bowing their heads, and we're not doing that yet. But I do this prayer thing, and I, I go, God, there's some of us in the room who are running on empty right now. And we don't, we don't need our problems solved as much as we need you to just fill us and transform us. And we just want to pray. We just want to pray that you'd fill us and transform us because we are empty, empty. And then I started crying because I'm empty. So that was the end of the thing. And then I opened my eyes and these guys are all weeping and they're gathering groups and they're hugging each other. And they're kneeling down and they're praying. And the camp director comes up to me and says, oh, Richard, you have no idea what God is doing here. This is a revival. I go, tell me what's going on. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me at all, right? <laughs> and he says, uh, he says uh, there was an ugly church split in Montreal. And both churches signed up for this retreat not knowing the other was there. <laughs> and so they all showed up. You know, the Baptist, you know, the previous guys are here and those guys are there and whatever it was. And they were mad at each other. There's just, just anger, anger in the room. I don't know any of this, right? He says they're all, it's reconciliation. God's restoring broken relationships right now. Thank you, Richard. I was so mad. <laughs> I, I was. I went back to my room because I keep a journal. And I went back, and this is what I wrote in my journal. I said, God, it's not really wise of you to use me this way <laughs> when I behave so poorly. Because if, I, if you use me when I behave poorly, when will I ever be motivated to behave well? <laughs> and then I could, really, I could hear God's voice almost audibly. And this is the first thing I hear from God. Ha! That's hysterical, Richard. 
when did I ever use you because you behaved well? <laughs> right? How liberating is that? When did God ever say to you, my precondition for transferring into wine is that you already be good wine? Oh, no, no. What is God doing? God's taking all the ceremony of our lives that has value, but isn't yet wine, and transforming it so that the ceremony of coaching Little League, the ceremony of supper with your kids and your wife, the ceremony of loving your grandkids, the ceremony of showing up at work, the ceremony of saying the courageous thing that needs to be said in a, in a, in a, in a board meeting, the ceremony of taking care of your body, the ceremony of turning off your computer when you want to turn it on, the, the, like the ceremony of your thought life, the ceremony of your sex life, the ceremony of your body, the ceremony of your neighbors, the ceremony of your relationship. God wants to change all that into wine and wants to. All you got to do is show up and he will, right? So if you're, do you feel empty tonight? Hey, that's okay. That's actually good. Because the only way you'll ever know fullness is, is if you first what? Embrace your emptiness and say, God, here, this, this piece of me, empty, empty. Great. Let's start there. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you that we, we can gather here this weekend and be honest with one another and, and say, yeah, this, this ritual in my life, this space in my life is empty. This space. It's my marriage, Jesus, that's empty. We're married, but it's, it's not wine, <laughs> It's, it's, it's my relationship with you, Jesus. It's there. I'm here this weekend, but it's not wine yet. It's my thought life. It's my sexuality. It's my relationship with money. It's my, it's my anger. I mean, I'm, I'm showing up, God. I'm there, but, but, but I'm empty. So I, I'm just going to ask, if you would, uh, this evening, before we dismiss... Where are you running on empty? Would you just name it this evening, quietly, to, to yourself? Where are you running on empty? What situation in your life needs new wine? God, whatever we're naming right now, we'll just jump out on a limb and thank you for your incredible character that you didn't show up at this party with a lecture on poor planning, <laughs> that you didn't uh, uh, come to this couple and uh, suggest that there was some kind of a workaround that would avoid humiliation but not really change them. Thank you that you, that you used the very situations of emptiness to move us to fullness that you can use the death of a parent, the meltdown of a marriage, the loss of a job, the foreclosure of a home, the discovery of a hidden addiction. These become the soil in which Jesus grows. Wow. That makes the gospel very good news. Thank you, thank you. But give us the courage then, because we're men, give us the courage to name our emptiness so that we can enjoy your fullness. Amen.